0: If you have a Bible, please make your way to Luke chapter 10 this morning. If you don't have one, they're in the racks and the seats in front of you. Uh, We've been working through this gospel, picking up different passages to talk about the church's values. And so we're looking forward to uh, Luke 10 this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, again, we kind of cheat and put all the scriptures up on the screen for you. But it's always best if you're just able to see it for yourself and truly read it there. And I've kind of always been told, and I truly believe this, that that when we hear the Word of God preached, it ought to show us how to study the Bible. And so it shows us how to actually learn how to read the Scriptures, interpret the Scriptures, and understand what God is saying ourselves. And so today we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, a very, very well-known story. And I'll begin reading in verse 30. So let's go ahead and turn there, and I'll pick up the words of Luke. He writes... Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Before we dive into it together, would you just take 20 seconds, 30 seconds, and just ask God's Spirit to speak to you today. We didn't come just to hear some person talk. We came to hear from the Lord. And that's what his word can do for us. So would you just take some time and ask the Lord to speak to your heart and then I'll do the same. Father, we come to you today expecting you to speak. Father, we don't simply come to worship uh, for Coffee and friends and relationships, and of course, those are all great things. But Father, we want to hear from you. We truly want your Spirit speaking to us. And that's exactly what your word is. It is your word to us for life now. So Father, I pray that you would remove distractions this morning. And that your truth might be made known to your people. For the sake of the gospel, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What is it that you find hardest, or let me start that over, who is it that you find hardest to love and demonstrate compassion to? Who is it that you find hardest to demonstrate love and compassion to a person, a group, Family member, who is it that you find hardest to love and demonstrate compassion to? Maybe this person doesn't believe what you believe. Maybe they don't live for what you think is worth living for. Maybe this group of people finds no joy in the very things you find joy in. Maybe they love the things that you find repulsive. Maybe what you call sin, they call beauty. What they call truth, you call deception. What you call righteousness, they call hatred. How hard is it to extend compassion to people who you are angered by, frustrated by, even repulsed by? One of the amazing things about Jesus Christ is that Jesus offered love through compassion to all people, everyone, without distinction all people were recipients of his loving compassion to the educated and the ignorant to the simple-minded and the deep thinkers to the marginalized and the outcast to the kings and queens and the impoverished and the desperate to the smelly the diseased and the broken the athletes the celebrities the stars the forgotten and the nobodies it was all the same If you ask non-Christians what they love about Jesus, this is often one of the things that they would bring up. They may not like Christianity as a religion. They might not like Jesus Christ when he's claimed to be the son of God or the only way to heaven or that salvation is only found through him. But if you ask them what is one thing they like about Jesus, they will say, well, I love that Jesus, the person, loved people. The most obvious way he demonstrated that love was through extending radical compassion to everyone through his crucifixion. But when you study his life, he seemed to have a special awareness and a special compassion for those who understood they needed help towards people, men, women, children, who knew they needed his compassion. Who is it? that you find hardest to love and demonstrate compassion to. We're in the midst of a series looking at our core values, seven principles, characteristics, the really actions that are found all over the life of Jesus. And we want these same values to be found all over the life of our church family as well. So we started with we are family. That's really where it starts, that the scriptures is the story of God bringing together a spiritual family. And then we moved into some of the other values, but that first one's the one it's really all built upon. So we talked about work hard, play hard, live to serve, and today, radical compassion for people. Here's the idea. Radical compassion compels us past our comforts. Radical compassion compels us, drives us, motivates us to move past, beyond our comforts. And through this story, Jesus shares with us three ways to live a life of compassion. But before we get to that, which will really be the second half, we first have to spend some time understanding why Jesus shared this story to begin with. Why is the story of the Good Samaritan in the Bible at all? Because compassion here, see, is essential to our faith, but our faith involves more than simply compassion. And Luke tells us that this conversation that Jesus gave with this lawyer that we'll find out, this was part of a conversation as Jesus was slowly moving, slowly progressing towards Jerusalem for the last time. This is the lead up to his death. And so before we get into the story that will show us three ways to live a life of compassion, we need to understand why Jesus shared the story in the first place. Look at verse 25. Let's just work through this really phrase by phrase. It says, and behold, a lawyer. That's never good when that's how the story starts. See, in those days, a lawyer meant a theologian. The law he studied was God's law. Specifically, a lawyer was a religious leader who was an expert with God's law, which was considered taken from the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Collectively, those five books were called the Pentateuch. And so these lawyers were experts in the law of God and its interpretation for the people of God. So this lawyer, this religious leader, this elite "'stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test.' He stands up while Jesus is teaching to ask a question. Now, what they would do is if you were a rabbi, you would stand and you would share your discourse or you would teach, and then around you, typically in a circle, would be other individuals who are listening, seated. And then they would stand in the middle of your speaking, and that was oftentimes, through that interruption, how they would then share their arguments and ask their questions. So he stands up to ask a question, but his motivations are not pure because he's testing Jesus. He's trying to expose Jesus as something other than the Messiah the last part of the verse says teacher this was the question he asked what shall I do to inherit eternal life let me read the question again what must I or what shall I do to inherit eternal life What what do you make of this question does it sound odd to you at all Like a strange question. I think we've become so familiar with this question, we're like, well, what's so weird about the question? It doesn't seem that odd to me. We don't even recognize how strange it is. Let me just kind of bring out how, how misguided it truly is. What do you do to inherit something? You can talk. The answer is nothing. You're born into the right family, that's how you inherit stuff. You're born into the right family. Maybe you maintain relationship. But he asks, notice what he asks here. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Normally, when you inherit something, you don't do anything. His question exposes his misconceptions about inheritance. His question exposes his misconceptions about the grace of God. He's basically saying, Jesus, what must I do? What works must I do? What things must I check off my list? What actions must I do in life so that I will inherit eternal life? What must I do? What must I do? So salvation, according to this lawyer, is up to whom? Himself. He will earn it himself. That's what the question gets after. So what does Jesus do? Does he say, that's a pretty horrible question. You totally don't get it. Maybe that's what we might be tempted to do. Jesus, fascinatingly, he was asked 183 questions in the Gospels. 183. Take a guess at how many he directly answered. Three. Instead, he asked 307 questions in return. So when someone comes to us and says, hey, I have a question for you. Where does evil come from? We might all of a sudden kind of go through the Rolodex of our mind and like, okay, okay, okay. man, this is a big one. This is a big one. This is important. Man, Do I, I know it. I know it. I got it. I got it. And then you share the answer. Here it is. And you notice that they're like, well, that doesn't really satisfy doesn't really do much. So often we think that when someone asks us a question about our faith, that we're just going to simply spout off some true statement, and all of a sudden that's going to convince them. Jesus, the Son of God, had a very different approach, didn't he? 183 questions asked. Could he have answered every single one with the proper answer theologically? Yes. Why did he not? Because he wanted to get after their hearts. So we asked 307 questions in return. Do you think that teaches us a few things on how we interact with people? I think in our culture, we're just like, okay, I was raised in this educational system, multiple choice. I know that answer. Essay, I know that one. Let me just spout off the answer. Now, are you satisfied? That was your question? I had the perfect answer. You can't even refute it. Take it and leave. Jesus... It was so much more merciful, gracious, and softer because he really got after people's hearts. So he asked a question in response. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He basically says, you're the expert, you're the lawyer, how do you read it? What do you think? And the lawyer answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now you might be thinking, I've heard that. Sentence these statements before. Didn't Jesus say something like that? Isn't that somewhere in the Old Testament too? Yes, Jesus did in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. But when Jesus gave this answer, he was asked a question and gave the exact same answer You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. The difference is Jesus was asked a different question. The context makes all the difference. Remember, context is always king. In Mark 12, Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? So he weaves together two Old Testament passages, Deuteronomy 6.5, love God, Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor. Jesus wasn't answering, in Mark 12, the question about inheriting eternal life. He was answering a question about the greatest commandment. But the lawyer here takes it further. He believes the way you inherit eternal life is by loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So what does Jesus say to him in response to his answer? You have answered correctly, verse 28. But there's more going on here than just that straight answer, isn't there? He says, do this and you will live. How do I gain eternal life? Well, Jesus just said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and your neighbor as much as yourself. And all of a sudden, maybe doubt started to creep in that lawyer's mind. Like, I'm not sure if I love everybody To that degree, the way that these verses or these statements are really brought out in the text. So this guy starts to realize, well, maybe I'm good. Of course he thought he was good. He thought he and God were on the same team. He thought he was in. Unless you think you might not meet this standard. And like every other human being and all of us here, he begins to squirm. Because he knows he doesn't measure up. He knows deep down, we all know that you don't love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But that's why he asked the second question. But he, desiring to justify himself, so he hasn't given up yet, says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? If I can figure out who my neighbor is, then maybe I've done enough to kind of push the balances in my favor, and maybe I will then inherit eternal life. Deep down, we are all uncomfortable with the idea that we can justify ourselves. Self-justification, basically the attitude of saying, I have done enough to be at peace with God. I have done it. That always falls short. Every time. I will earn my inheritance with God, that's self-justification. But here's the thing, friends, you can either buy into self-justification or God's justification through Christ, but you cannot have both. You cannot have both. You can either buy into the fact that you will have a good relationship with God by the work that you do, or you will buy into the fact that you will have a good relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. But you cannot believe both. The gospel doesn't allow it. So Jesus confronts him with this question, which do you choose? Do you think you do it all? Or do you think I've done it for you? Or the Messiah will do it for you? And now we get into the second question. He says, well, who is my neighbor? So our story of compassion, here's the point. Our story of compassion is set within the framework of a broader discussion talking about salvation. So Jesus is talking about salvation and as he's talking about salvation of someone's soul, then he talks about compassion in this context of of who is my neighbor. Jesus is teaching compassion here but don't miss the fact that he's saying a whole lot more than just speaking about compassion. He's talking about how we actually inherit eternal life through his life. So Jesus wants to expand this man's perspective. So he tells a story And the story is what gets to the question. The guy says, who's my neighbor? Well, Jesus is going to again respond with a question, but he tells a story to get there. Here's the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So you have this picture of a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a 17-mile trip through rugged terrain, downhill most of the way, as you moved from 20... 500 feet above sea level to about 800 below. The area was uninhabited without much vegetation. It was carved through limestone cliffs. Now, the road was known for bandits that would hide behind the cliffs and rob people. It was so famous for this that people traveling from Jericho up to Jerusalem, climbing back up, they they called it the ascent, the climb up, the pathway up, the ascent of blood was its nickname. That's how dangerous the road was. So Jesus said a man is robbed, beaten, and stripped. He's naked and unconscious by the side of the road. And at this point in history, we need to remember also that society is highly structured. So different groups could be identified by their language, by their clothing, by their accents. So, for example, the priests of the Jewish people often spoke Hebrew. The peasants in the south mostly spoke Aramaic. The people along the coasts, some of them still spoke ancient Phoenician. Up in the north in Galilee, where Jesus grew up, they spoke Greek. If you were a Roman uh, emissary or an official, you spoke Latin. Now, most of them were bilingual, but people knew where you came from based on your language and your accent. And if that didn't give it away, which it usually always would... Then your clothing certainly would. The priests dressed in a certain way. Those who had a lot of means and were wealthy, they dressed a certain way. The peasants, they dressed a certain way. Just by looking at someone's clothing, you knew exactly where they were in the societal structure. What's the point of all of that? The man who is unconscious here, other than assuming he's a Jewish man, he's without clothing, so no one could tell what type of person he was. He was unconscious, so he couldn't speak, so they had no idea where he came from. So this is a complete stranger. What happens? Well, this complete stranger, now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw this man, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, you can imagine the justification from the priest and the Levite. The Levite's like a junior priest. If if this man along the side of the road were in priestly clothes, maybe they would have helped. If he was clearly a wealthy man, a man of means, maybe they would have helped. Maybe they thought he might not live that long, so what's the use? Maybe... Uh, he wanted to follow the law. Maybe that's what the priest and the Levite wanted to do. This is probably most likely the case. This might have been certainly what Jesus might have been picking up on, that they wanted to follow the law. And that meant that if they were to come in contact with something that was dead, that would make them ceremonially unclean in the temple. What that meant was if you're a priest, your job is to do the work in the temple, but if you touch something that's dead, now you've got to go through a cleansing process and you can't do your job. So, Maybe they just didn't want to be ceremonially unclean. They wanted to do their job. Maybe they thought they would have to pay for a burial, which would have put his finances in a bind. Maybe the thieves who beat this guy up are still right around the corner, just waiting for you. So what's the natural thought? Better get out of here fast. In the late 1920s, this is a true story, in the state of Massachusetts, A very interesting case was brought before the court that created a great deal of public tension. It involved a man who had been walking along a pier. He tripped over a rope and fell into the cold water of the ocean in the bay. He came up spitting and sputtering and screaming for help. And then he would descend below the level of the water surface. A few seconds later, he'd come up again, spitting and sputtering and screaming for help. And then he'd sink below the surface. And this happened several times. Now a friend down the beach recognized the voice, knew his friend was in trouble, sprinted over to the pier, but by the time he got there, it was too late. The man had drowned. He'd given way to the tug of the ocean, and he died. Ironically, within just a few yards of this drowning man, a young man in his mid-twenties lay sunbathing on a deck chair. Not only did he hear the man screaming in the water, he was also an excellent swimmer. Yet he did nothing to help. He simply turned his head towards the screams, and as witnesses would recount it, turned back and did nothing. The man drowned, and when the family heard about this sunbather, they were so disgusted by his lack of compassion, they sued him. They took him to court. The verdict was that the state of Massachusetts ruled reluctantly that the man sunbathing on the pier had no legal responsibility to attempt to save the drowning man's life. In that ruling, you can almost hear the posture of this priest and this Levite. You can almost hear the words of Cain Am I my brother's keeper? The law of our land says no. You are not. As an American, you are guaranteed the right not to act in the best interests of another person. That is the law of the land. That is your right. But the law of our land is not what determines how we are ultimately to live as Christians. The gospel is. Changes our posture towards people. Radical compassion compels you past your comforts, and it does so in three ways. Let's go through them briefly. Look first for and look for and engage in needs around you. Look for and engage in needs around you. And through this story, we see that's exactly what the Samaritan did. Now, I lived in Troy for 10 years, and during most of those 10 years, I say this to my shame, I didn't know a single neighbor. Not a single neighbor. I didn't know Edith Holthus. She was 89 years old, who lived a street over from my house to the south. She was a charter member of Woodside Bible Church. She'd become a member of Woodside in 1955 when the church first started. She lived a street over from me, and she needed help. And her neighbors, who were gypsies, they had children in third grade and fifth grade who were illiterate, could not read, and the state was threatening to take them away. And her other neighbors, who were elderly, struggling because the wife of the man who lived there, both elderly, she was terminally ill with cancer. Or my neighbor Frank, one street to the north, who was estranged from his two daughters, divorced, and alone except for the government worker that would come and see him two times every week, and he was struggling also with a terminal illness. I didn't know a neighbor right across the street behind us who had showed up to Woodside just one time, but she had multiple children and couldn't give them three meals a day. Sometimes they would go days without food. I didn't know of the two Woodside families on my street who were both struggling in their marriages When we started our neighborhood group, a group of us started opening our eyes. And as soon as we did, we started to see that we needed to engage in people's needs. And when you open your eyes to the needs around you, what do you think you're gonna see? People in desperate need. They're all around you, right now. In your life, where you live, they are around you. People in desperate need. Just one story, when we went to Frank's house one day, we went over there to clean up his yard. We cleaned up his yard as best we could. We shared the gospel with him. I don't know if that was the first time or the hundredth time he'd heard it. We offered him hope. We offered him the message of Christ. A few weeks later, we wrote him a letter and told him we were praying for him and we gave him a little bit of money just to encourage him. A week after we sent that letter, he died. I knew Frank for... One month, the last month of his life. And I'm grateful for that month. But what about the previous 10 years? Are you looking for and engaging with the needs of people around you? And the best way to do it is in community with other believers. In verse 34, Jesus says through the story, He went to him. The Samaritan went to him. What did he do? He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he he set him on his own animal and took him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, Jesus shows us a second way here to live with radical compassion. We need to look for and engage in needs around us. We need to give generously to those in need. It's hard to put into words how shocking it would be for a Jew at this time to hear that the hero of Jesus' story is not a Jew but a Samaritan. It's hard to even put it into words. The Samaritans were idolaters, according to the Jews. They built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim to replace the temple in Jerusalem. They were mutts. They intermarried during captivity and were no longer Jewish. They were were hated, half-breeded apostates. It would be like this. It would be like us telling a story and the non-denominational evangelical pastor passes by. The Catholic priest passes by, but the Muslim imam who serves ISIS stops. That's more like how they would have heard it. A Samaritan man transporting a robbed, abused Jewish man could have led to a few misunderstandings when he entered the Jewish town. He put himself at risk. When he picks up this man and takes him to the town, all the Jewish people, maybe the innkeeper's thinking, wait a second, that guy's unconscious, he has no clothing, you're giving me money to take care of him, how do I know you just didn't rob him of all his money, give me a few things and you're taking the rest of it for yourself. There had to be potential for misunderstandings. He put himself at risk by taking this generous posture with this stranger. Mixing together oil and wine was kind of like a first century uh, first aid kit wine to clean the wounds and oil to soothe them, and then wrapping to, wrappings to keep the wounds clean. Then he puts the stranger in his own, on his own animal. He walks and he takes him to the inn to recover. Uh, This would have been some kind of hostel that had food, a place to sleep, a place to keep your animals, and he doesn't leave once he gets the guy to safety. He doesn't say, okay, he's now safe, he's in this secure environment, now I'm going to go on my way. He actually does what? Well, he has a conversation with the innkeeper the next morning. What does that mean? That means he stayed with the guy all night long, and after he stays with them all night long, he has the conversation with the innkeeper, and he gives him enough money, two denarii, that will cover this man's care for the next three weeks. And then he says, if that's not enough and he needs more time to heal, just ring up the bill and I'll pay it when I come back. This is radical generosity. Radical generosity. And look at the final way Jesus teaches us to live with this type of compassion. He finally then gets to his question. He tells the story to the lawyer, and then he says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The principle, love all people out of a heart of compassion. Now the story was the setup for this question. Who is my neighbor? Jesus finally answers it. Do you know who your neighbor is? Everybody. 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 Jesus says it himself, it's easy to love people who you love. It's hard to love people who are your enemies. He says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Who's my neighbor? It's humanity. I first heard the story of Jim Elliott and Operation Aucca when I was in college. He was one of the five missionaries, if you're familiar with it who were brutally murdered with spears in 1956 as they attempted to evangelize a violent tribe known as the Waodani in Ecuador. His journals have been read ever since. Probably his best known phrase, the one that certainly captured my heart, was when he wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. But there was another statement that I thought was so practical to this story today. He also wrote this man who gave up his very life for these people, an an ultimate act of generosity for the sake of the gospel, along with these other men. He also wrote this about his brothers and sisters back home and the place in which he grew up. It says, it makes me boil, he said, when I think of the power we profess and the utter impotency of our action. Believers who know one-tenth as much as we do are doing 100 more times for God with his blessing and our criticism. Oh, if I could write it, preach it, say it, paint it, anything at all, if only God's power would become known among us. We do not want to be people who hear and do not do. We do not want to be people here, friends, who hear and do not do. And I'm grateful because I know many of you, you're trying, you're trying to live out this type of compassion and love for the sake of the salvation of people. And that's amazing. We need to continue that work. But let's not hear this morning and not do. We wanted to demonstrate that this very week. We, w- we didn't just want to hear truth, we wanted to practice truth. And so we as a church, as a Woodside Bible Church, wanted to at least express one way to do that. I was talking with Pastor Doug this past Tuesday, and we came across a woman in need. And we just have met her recently. And yet we knew her story through one of our Detroit members who runs a ministry called AWOL, All Worthy of Love. It's a human trafficking um, ministry. And so we started thinking, how can we help this woman? Let's see the story.
1: Dylan, when I heard your story, I thought of the Good Samaritan. uh, Because you were that... uh, person beat up on the side of the road, Um, maybe more than half dead from your story. You grew up in Seattle, and you found, you ran away from home. Uh, Tell us what happened next.
2: I um, ran away from home at 13, and I started, I was introduced to drugs, which led me into meeting men, which led me into being introduced to work on the streets.
1: And that went on for years and years. Yes. Um, You were beaten.
2: Yes, I was um, beaten several times. My jaw was broke, and he tried to drown me.
1: And this went on for a long time. Yes. Uh, Altogether, this journey has been 17 years. Yes. (laughs) And then, and then uh, uh, as your story goes, you talked about a, a white van.
2: <laughs> yeah. Tell us about the white van. This white van, I was um, on the streets, and this white van, um, I was standing on the street. This white van did like this U-E, and it was really quick and really sharp, and these heads were sticking out of this van, and they were screaming, and it wasn't they were just like hey hey and they pulled up to me and they asked my name was most important they asked my name and um they asked if i needed something to eat or um if i would like a bag which had hygiene products in it and they also um offered prayer and talked to me about jesus and they were their glow they were just happy there was just something so special about them
1: let me fill them in on the white van yeah Um, many years ago, several years ago now, yeah. we had a young lady uh, that became part of our Detroit campus, Lindsay,
2: uh-huh.
1: oh, Lindsay yeah. Fisher, mm-hmm. and, uh, and she came to us with this, with this desire to rescue uh, uh, girls from the street, and she wanted to begin a program called All Worthy of Love, yes. and she did, um, and began this uh, through the encouragement of a lot of people here at Woodside and funding, and, and, and got a white van,
0: yeah. and
1: apparently did uh, U-turns quickly in the street. <laughs> but that imprinted you, didn't it? Yes. With the gospel. Yes, it did. But you didn't accept the Lord then. Um, you ended up in jail.
2: I ended up in jail, and I was um, walking around the table crying. And I remember this because I, don't, I, don't, I, I didn't pray. I, um, I prayed to God, and as I prayed to him, I, I don't even remember exactly what I asked him, but I just remember my tears drying up, and I remember this thousand pound weight just lifted off me. And um, after that, well, you know who we serve, a supernatural God, <laughs> I don't yeah. know what else to say. But, um, yeah. You
1: came to know Jesus. Sure did. Yeah. <laughs> And you're, you're pretty happy about it, aren't you?
2: Oh, I love him so much. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> you were sharing with me earlier your favorite passage of scripture. Can yeah. you read that to us?
2: hmm It's Isaiah 43. Um, it's one through three. And it says, but now this is what the Lord says. He created you, Jacob. He who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Thank
1: yeah. you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You know the, the passage is so cool because it talks of the fact that we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear because God has a plan for us and God has promises for us. And God loves us, redeems us, and calls us by name. You've experienced um, um, everything but love. Yeah. Delyn, in your in your short life. And I'm so glad that God rescued you. You have a dream, don't you? What is that dream?
2: (laughs) Um, My dream is um, to um, be moving back to Seattle and to um, get my master's and start an AWOL there. Yeah, (laughs) go out there and (laughs) And, spread the gospel. And
1: you want to share this with your mom, too, don't you? You want your mom to come to know Jesus.
2: Yes. I want my mom to... um, know that she can walk on golden sidewalks and never shed a tear again. Do
1: you want to give the rest of your life to rescuing other girls in Seattle? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we, we wish you well. Thank you. Um, Delin. I think uh, at 30, you're starting your life all over again, aren't you? Yes. But you're starting it right with Jesus. Yes. You're, you've got a part-time job. Yes. And you're uh, you've got a, you're going to school, mm-hmm. uh, to get your degree, and you'll finish it uh, in Seattle if your plan works out. Yes. My understanding, uh, Dylan, is well that you're uh, because you were beaten, your mouth, your teeth, your jaw has been broken.
2: Yes.
1: Um, you've had extensive uh, dental work and some more to go.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I had my jaw I was. Wired shut, but the wires stayed on for about four years, and it um, started decaying my teeth at the gum line. Um, I had friends, uh, a friend helped get the wires off, and then um, God provided, you know, for me to fix a couple of teeth, and then uh, Lindsay AWOL, found it out I needed more help, and she um, offered to pay to fix my teeth. Yeah: yeah. <laughs>
1: Well. Our understanding is that you've got two big procedures left, and, yes. and we, want to, um, we want to pay for those.
2: Oh my God, this is crazy.
1: Uh, we also understand <laughs> that you don't, you don't have a car to get you to school. Or to work? Yes. Would this one here work?
2: Oh, yes. <laughs> I don't even know what to do. I don't even know. It's like, pinch me, is this real? <laughs> yeah.
1: God loves you. Thank you. Lynn, and so do we.
0: So the last couple of days, uh, we purchased that vehicle and gave it to her last night. And we'd like to cover those dental bills for her. And I know that across, there's probably three or four of the campuses that knew the story, us and a few others. And I know that uh, these costs probably are being taken care of very quickly, but the point is that uh, we want to demonstrate our compassion, not just be hearers of the word, but doers. And so if you'd like to help pay for her dental bills and for that vehicle for her, we have baskets uh, on your way out today. You could drop some money in there, no pressure. Uh, Anything that's raised above and beyond the the bills for fixing her teeth, as well as her vehicle, we're going to give to AWOL, all worthy of love to uh, our member from Detroit who's fighting human trafficking in the city. And that's one of the ministries that we partner with across our locations. And it's interesting because the ministry is down in Detroit, but the girls who are taken are typically from the suburbs, from our neck of the woods. And so we're all in this together. And yet even dropping off a few dollars, uh, the point isn't that we're just like, okay, we've done our good thing. Jesus calls us to a life of compassion. But never separate that compassion from the broader discussion, and that is salvation for people's souls. Who is it that you find hardest to love and demonstrate compassion to? Who is it? Radical compassion compels you past your comforts. Look for and engage in needs. Give generously to those in need and love all people with a heart like God's, like Jesus, of compassion. Father God, thank you for this day, for your word. Father, I thank you for this time where we could explore this story of Christ. I thank you that we can understand from this text that we can do absolutely nothing to gain a spiritual inheritance for eternity. That when we try to self-justify, I've done enough, I've been good enough, I've given enough, I have good enough character and I stack up, that all of that self-justification falls infinitely short of your standard. To love you with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and to love everyone as ourselves. So Father, help us to know that salvation is only found in the work of Jesus. I pray for anyone who is here today who's been thinking that they're good with you because of their own doing, their own effort. Help them to know that today salvation can be theirs if they simply receive the work of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection as the forgiveness of their sin. Help them to receive that gospel today, Father, and help all of us who have received it to live in light of it to then share a life of compassion with people so that ultimately we would have an audience to share salvation with them. Lord, I thank you for the story of this young woman who's moving back to Seattle but just gives us a small picture of a sister now who doesn't even attend our church. She doesn't even attend Woodside, Father, but somebody who we know through one of our sisters in Detroit and she has needs and we can just... Meet our needs, show compassion, and help us, Father, to do this in our neighborhoods, our networks leading into Easter, leading into the spring. Father, use us for your glory. We're expecting great things. In Jesus' name, amen.